Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Capital Stewards podcast. On today's show, we wanted to talk through everything that's been going on in the banking and financial world, given all of the events over the last couple of weeks. Saxon's going to ask me a bunch of questions, and I'm going to try to give you some really good perspective on what's actually been happening in the world. I think it's really important whenever there's a financial crisis or a banking crisis, um, you start listening to the news, you hear sort of uh, different perspectives about what's happening, to be able to separate fact from fiction and hyperbole. It's important to understand the different types of accounts that you own, what the risks are that are associated with those things, not to have rose-colored glasses, but also important to have the right information to be able to make smart decisions as opposed to maybe just getting caught up in what's happening in the media, which is definitely designed to get you to click on something or to engage in a topic, not necessarily to give you good, thoughtful perspective. So we're going to try to do something that will be thought-provoking and healthy for you today. So let's dive in. Hello, and welcome to the Capital Stewards Podcast. Are you a professional who wants straightforward, trustworthy financial strategies you can act on? Are you entering your highest income earning years and discovering that your personal finances are becoming too complex? We get it. You're a highly confident professional, but you don't have time to go deep on your personal finances the way you do with your day job. Hi, I'm Brian, and helping professionals make smart financial decisions is my passion. I run a financial advisory practice called the Capital Stewards, and work with professionals like you who are trying to cut through the noise every day. It's time to stop Googling every question you have about money and dive into some real professional guidance. So let's get moving. Okay, Brian, it's been a pretty busy 10 days in the banking industry. Lots of news Lots between of news. Silicon Valley Bank and UBS. So why don't we start with what happened this weekend with Credit Suisse and UBS? Credit Suisse has been struggling for the better part of a decade with kind of bad strategic decisions, bad risk management. They went into businesses, they exited businesses, got overseas investors. They've done all kinds of different things. The The value of the bank had declined like two thirds over the last decade coming into last year. So before we even start talking about rising interest rates and all this stuff, they sort of have been going down. And what what really happened is that the clients started to take a look at kind of those prior missteps. And then they took a look at rising interest rates and bank failures and stuff that was happening. And they said, okay, you know, this hasn't been well managed for a long time. So we aren't going to count on the fact that they're going to manage through this particular set of challenges and we're going to start pulling our money out and we're going to go to UPS or to other end. And so ultimately that's what happened. You had a run on Credit Suisse. Credit Suisse is actually in a pretty strong place from a capital standpoint. They probably could have survived another week or two, but the, the Swiss government decided it would be better as, as often happens to sort of shut things down over the weekend. And so they basically created a merger between UBS, which is the other Swiss bank and Credit Suisse over over the weekend that was announced on Sunday. And and so now folks that were working with Credit Suisse are, are still working with Credit Suisse, but they're working with Credit Suisse backed by UBS. Does that have an impact for us? I, I think it's in the news a lot. Obviously, most I think most of our friends and clients don't have was making relationships. And so I, I think other than its impact on sort of broader markets and the fact that it creates more uncertainty around the banking system, I think on folks here in the States is, is pretty small. I think I think it will be less of, of a deal for us other than on the evening news. I think I, I think just generally when we think about what's been happening with bank failures, I think it's really important to kind of cut through the noise and understand what's really important and what's not important. And I don't see the credit suite. You think something sort of like systematic 
you know, creating a lot of risk or creating a lot of challenges for, for what's happening here in the States. It does seem to be creating some more uncertainty in the environment, though, about banking institutions and the world of banking and how you engage with banks as a consumer. Why don't we start talking about what really happened at Silicon Valley Bank, and then we can talk a little bit more about kind of what that means for us. Yeah. So SVB, Silicon Valley Bank, is, is really unique because 10 or 15 years ago, they were just a really small bank in Silicon Valley. And they started banking venture capital firms and the tech startups that those VC firms were investing in. And then as capital flowed into venture capital funds over the last decade at really, really high levels, money flowed into Silicon Valley Bank, either for the VC funds or for the, the tech startups that they were ultimately investing in. And then what happened over the last year is as the venture capital environment changed and those firms started to draw down cash, go out of business, there was less investment dollars going into the funds. The balances of Silicon Valley Bank kind of started to draw back down to maybe what you would say is a more normal level, and that led to challenges for Silicon Valley Bank. It's, it's important to understand that what happened at SVB was a classic run on, it was a liquidity crisis. There was, SVB didn't make a bunch of bad loans. There were leaders in the venture capital industry that saw some, some weakness there, which probably short of anything happening would have created some bad earnings for a couple of quarters at SVB, and they would on. But when a couple of the leaders in the venture industry started to ask companies to pull money out of Silicon Valley Bank, that kind of spread around the other clients and customers of Silicon Valley Bank. That created a run on the bank, which creates a liquidity crisis. And ultimately, they got shut down. This is like, I think, something that a lot of folks don't understand is that if half of the depositors at any bank in the world show up on a single day or over a few weeks and ask for their money back, the bank is going to... That's just... The way that banks work is they take on a short-term basis, they try to manage that liquidity risk, and then they invest in things that pay back over time. They make loans, right? They make mortgage loans, they make auto loans, they make all kinds of different loans. And so if any, if all of the customers of any bank show up on any particular day and ask for their money, the bank is going to fail. And that's really what happened in Silicon Valley Bank is instead of being maybe poorly managed and having some issues for a couple of quarters from an earnings perspective, everyone showed up and demanded their money immediately, and they went under as, as a result of it. Yeah, I think... <clears throat> maybe folks who are like less connected to tech and VC don't see how like tightly connected that community is. And that when one venture firm says to all the companies that they're invested in, go get your assets out of SVB, that's not just going to cascade to the, the business that they're invested in because that network is so tight. Everyone starts to kind of panic and take the same actions, which in this case caused that run on the bank is, the, is A, that they serve such a niche market that niche is so networked together that once one, two, three, four companies started to take action, it was just a domino effect across the industry. Yeah. And so I think there's there's two things at play there. So one, obviously, it is very concentrated in the industry. Most other banks serve many different industries. They're very geographically diverse, especially the larger they get. And so it's that you know, kind of having an issue in one particular community is less of a systematic threat for the entire bank. But the other thing that happened here is, is social media and just digital banking and kind of the confluence of that. And we didn't have that as much in 2007, 2008. And so when, you know, when one venture capital firm decided to start pulling their money out of the bank, that spread on social media really quickly to other funds, to other tech startups. And then it was really easy for folks to sit in a meeting that they were in and just go online to their bank accounts and start wiring money out right? because we have a much more digital system now than we had 10 or 20 years ago. And so instead of having to go to the bank and talk to your representative and wait in a line and things that just put friction in that process and maybe would have resulted in sort of slowing down and some people having some, having some time to think, 
it was it was over kind of in a, in a heartbeat. So I think that probably is part of the environment that we're living in today as well. So obviously the Fed stepped into that situation. Yes. Talk a little bit about why that's beneficial for everyone. Yeah, so I, the FDIC and the Federal Reserve, so the, the FDIC is the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. So most people don't sort of understand the FDIC is an insurance fund. So banks pay insurance premiums, all banks pay insurance premiums into the FDIC. And the FDIC uses that fund essentially that has hundreds of billions of dollars in it when a bank fails to make the depositors hold. That's what it's there for. And so what, what actually happened in the case of Silicon Valley Bank is that the FDIC you know, said, hey, we're going to make all the depositors hold. Now, typically in, in the in the law, the, the way existing banking law is written in the U.S., the FDIC insurance fund covers deposits up to $250,000. What they what the FDIC and the Federal Reserve did in this case is they said, we're going to cover all deposits in the bank, regardless of the amount of those. If you have more than $250,000, we're still going to make the depositors whole. What's important is they didn't give any money to bondholders or to the investors in the bank or to the executives. They just said, hey, if you're a depositor in this institution, have a checking account here. We're going to make sure that that, that money is is good and, and available to you. And that's really important in in our view. Allowing any depositors to take losses at Silicon Valley Bank and sort of saying, hey, we're going to enforce market discipline on these people and they should have made smarter decisions about where to, to do their banking would have probably resulted in the end of the banking system as we know it today. Everybody who uses regional or smaller banks would have basically said, hey, we're not going to take any risk with our deposit. It's a checking account. I'm not trying to take any risk. So I'm going to move it to one of the four or five biggest banks that we that we think are sort of too big to fail or, or that the government won't allow to fail. So regardless of kind of your views on you know, whether they should or shouldn't have bailed out depositors, I do think it's the case that had they not done what they did two weekends ago, you would have, you would have had massive bank runs on smaller community banks in the U.S. And so I think it was really important for them to step in and say, hey, if you're a depositor, your money is going to be. So let's talk a little bit more about this $250,000. FDIC limit. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit more about this $250,000 FDIC limit. Obviously, that was an issue with you know many of the depositors at SVB because they were not necessarily personal bank accounts. They were more company bank accounts that might have millions of dollars of payroll in them or millions of dollars of other cash flow expenses or taxes or things like that. And so... Many of those accounts far exceeded the two hundred fifty thousand dollars limit. How would we think about this more for you know individ in an individual context for you know maybe some of the clients that you serve, Brian, or for other individuals who maybe are accruing dollars in a banking institution that are over two hundred fifty thousand dollars? Yeah, so I I think the, the first question that that people ask that I've gotten asked over the last kind of week or so is are my deposits in my bank safe? And in our view, that is. Deposits in your bank are safe, regardless of whether you bank with a smaller organization or a large one. And, and that's because of the actions that the FDIC and the Fed took. They essentially said, you know, we're going to create a new temporary lending facility. We're going to give all the banks access to that over the next year in case they have more depositors that come and, and demand money than what they're expecting to happen. And, and that is supposed to shore up the banking system. And I do think that that will, that that will work. That doesn't mean that there won't be any bank failures, but I, I by and large, that will prevent uh, banks from going under. And most importantly, because the Fed and the FDIC guaranteed the deposits at Silicon Valley Bank, I view it as really unlikely that they would then go to another bank failure and say, well, this time we're not going to deposits, right? 
So I think your deposits are probably safe. The other thing that you mentioned in your, in your question is what do we do when there are accounts that have more than $250,000? And again, because of the comments that the FDIC and the Federal Reserve have made over the past week, this isn't law. It's not in the legislation. And the legislation would, would say that you're still exposed if you have more than $250,000. But because of the comments they made over the last week, I think you're I think you're pretty safe to just leave your deposits in U.S. banking institutions. So you talked, Brian, just now about how really with any bank, if half the depositors came and wanted to get their money out, that yeah. would be a problem for any bank. Why talk a little bit about why banks don't just keep all the money on hand? Like I maybe I, I might have this expectation as a depositor that literally my dollars are going into a safe somewhere at the back of the bank well, and nothing happens to them the until bank. I come yeah. back and get them later. That's not really how it works. So talk a little bit about what what's happening kind of behind the scenes at the banks and why don't they keep all my money on hand when I deposit it? Yeah. So you may, if, if you've taken any like economics classes, there's this concept of a of no free lunch, right? So if you think about that concept for a minute, and then you think back to that free checking savings or money market account that you opened, those two things obviously don't align, right? You're not actually getting free checking. The bank is providing transaction services to you. They're giving you a, a debit card, right? And sometimes there's fees attached to that as well, but they're giving you access to move money around. They're giving you digital access to your accounts, cool app, all kinds of tools in there. And they're doing all kinds of things from a regulatory perspective that, that cost money. And they have to earn a profit as well. Otherwise, they wouldn't exist. So banks earn money by lending out your shorter-term deposits to other people for a longer period of time at higher interest rates. And then they pay you a, a percentage of the interest that they earn over time. The, their sort of profit is the difference between what they earn and what they have to pay you as, as a depositor. Well-run banks, they manage the risk of depositors that need cash and they balance that with the loan payments that they have coming in. And so they ensure that everybody has access to cash when they need it. That's the core business of being a good, well-run bank is that people make deposits. They're able to lend money out and ensure that everyone still has access to cash when they need it. There's The regulators also spend a lot of time building rules and covering lending levels and making sure that everything stays healthy. So when things are working properly, that's okay. But if if banks just simply worked like custodians and kept your money in a safe at the back, they would probably have to charge you several thousand dollars a year for the service. And that hasn't been a sort of a competitive business model in the US for, for a really long time. So I, I think Part of this crisis may may bring up some questions around the banking system, and you know, can I just go get a bank vault somewhere, or can I you know, work in a in, at a bank that that or a, an institution? We won't call it a bank because it's not a bank; they don't make loans. But can I work at some institution or put my money with some institution that doesn't lend the money out? We could do that, but it would cost everyone a lot of money, and, and that, from an economics perspective, hasn't worked in the past. One of the things I heard this weekend is a popular kind of misnomer too is. Everyone says, well, I, yeah, I just want to leave my money in a bank and I don't want it lent out, but I also want to have a mortgage and a credit card and car loan and all of those other things that we use in society today. So if everyone just put their money in the bank and there was no lending associated with that, and the markets for a lot of the things that, that regular people use every day for, for loans would also not exist. And so, it, it's a, so changes that we make to the banking system as a result of that have to balance those two things or you know, folks need for longer term capital and need for debt in, in a healthy way with with the cash deposits that they're making. So that kind of inherently creates this risk, right? Because the dollars I deposit are not there in the bank. Yes. Do you expect then that bank runs will continue to happen? So I, I do think that probably we will see more banks fail as part of this sort of crisis or as, as part of this series of things that are happening right now. 
I think, like I mentioned earlier, digital transactions and social media are causing banks to lose deposits a lot faster than people thought were possible. And so in, in particularly in smaller community organizations, maybe where there's only a small number of industries or something like that, if a few depositors get concerned that something could happen, then everyone can begin acting almost immediately and start pulling money out of the bank. And the reality is, like I said earlier, no no bank in the world can withstand a complete loss of confidence and and a significant percentage of short-term deposit withdrawals. The system just simply does not work that way. So maybe First Republic fails, maybe it doesn't. Maybe there are others out there that fail as, as part of this crisis. What I, what I think is important for everybody to understand is that given the comments of the Fed and the and the FDIC over the last couple of weeks, I think regardless of whether a, a particular institution fails or not, I think as a depositor, not as a bank investor, but as a depositor, I think it's fairly safe to say that you're going to be made whole. And so I don't think you have to be super concerned that they are going to lose your money. So we've talked a little bit about how, you know, that the FDIC stepping in protects me as a depositor. This kind of also create this sort of... Um, I'll get bailed out mentality amongst the, the banks themselves. The perverse incentive. So, so far in the U.S., no shareholders or bondholders of any of the failed organizations, the Silicon Valley or Signature Bank, have actually received any money. In Switzerland, with, with what happened between UBS and Credit Suisse over the weekend, some of the equity of bondholders are, are going to get paid. Some will not. And the Swiss government is giving UBS like a lot of assistance and and. Uh, financial backup in order to get them to close the transaction. So you probably can argue that that's a bailout, but we're still talking about a lot of moral hazard or uh, perverse incentive in this case, but it's certainly not going to encourage like more risk taking going forward. So I, I, in 2008, we had specific institutions that the government actually were, where they bailed out the owners of the bank when they made transactions and structure things in such a way that the, the equity holders didn't lose significant dollars. And that hasn't happened so far this time around. So I do think the two two things are are different. So Brian, as we wrap up today, what would you say is sort of the thesis statement that you want our listeners to take away? So in summary, what I would say is that I think U.S. depository institutions, your, your banks, your brokerage firms, for the most part, are safe places. I don't think that you have to be super concerned with, with moving all of your money out, especially if you bank at a smaller firm. I, it's really critical to understand the types of accounts that you own. There are differences between different types of brokerage and investment custodians. We work with Schwab in our case because our client assets are segregated from their balance sheet. So if something happened to Charles Schwab, our clients would get all of their money back. There's no there's no commingling of funds. Not all brokerage firms work that way. And so it's important um, that you understand what kind of investment firm you're working with, how they custody their assets. If you're not sure that your assets are, are protected in that way, then it certainly would be a good time to start asking some questions about the, the nature of the investing relationship that you have. All right, everybody. Thanks for another great episode of the Capital Stewards Podcast. We look forward to seeing you next time. Commentary provided is for general audiences and educational purposes only. It should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice for your specific situation. That's why you should talk to a professional. Hello. Past performance of market results is no assurance of future performance. All the information in the podcast has been obtained from sources we deem reliable as of the date of this recording, but it's not guaranteed.